Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. listening to the World Soccer Talk podcast, the only podcast about watching soccer on TV and online. Welcome to episode 164, coming up on this week's show, a Fox analyst says goodbye to the broadcaster, the English game comes to Netflix just in time, how much of an appetite is there for classic matches on demand, a new season of a hit soccer documentary is coming to Netflix, plus we have letters from you, the listeners, in our mailbag section. I'm Christopher Harris, a.k.a. The Gaffer, and I'm joined alongside Kartik Krishnair. Now, Kartik, uh, some people probably, probably would think that, what do we have to talk about on this show? B- basically, because this show is about watching soccer on television, online, and apps. But there's a lot to talk about. Before we get into the soccer and what we've been watching from this past week, uh, both live and on demand... Let's just take a, a brief tangent and talk about some of the stuff, other stuff we've been watching that's not been soccer. Uh, for me, Kartik, I mean, this past week has been busy with work, catching up on a lot of things, um, working on trying to set up some interviews for the Heart of the Game uh, podcast series that we're continuing, uh, in addition to updating the website and, and writing some articles, etc., and also staying on top of um, who's showing what, uh, especially for this weekend. So, um, so for me, work-wise, it hasn't changed. But um, personal, like you know, kind of entertainment-wise, not as much soccer been watched. But um, this past week, the, probably the two things that stand out, stand out for me would be non-soccer related. Would be Lego Masters, which is this is an incredible show. Uh, how Fox can produce a show this good. And yet the soccer coverage would be so bad is beyond me. But this is one of my favorite shows to watch with the family. Really, really entertaining stuff. And then the second thing is is Tiger King, the Netflix documentary, which is wild, wacky. Uh, a lot of Florida influence in this one, Kartik, uh, not surprisingly, but uh, just a, a crazy documentary. And I binge watched that the other night and watched the whole thing. Now I, I've, I'm guessing, Kartik, that your your tastes in uh, entertainment and kind of watching was quite different than mine. So I, I want to hear what you've been watching or, or uh, listening to lately. 
Yeah, Tiger King is actually on my watch list, and I'll probably get to that uh, in the next uh, in the next few days. Uh, I'm watching a lot of documentaries that I had uh, kind of stored up, uh, uh, PBS American Experience documentaries. Been watching a, a fair amount of uh, documentaries from the Smithsonian Channel, including America in Color in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, and these are great. They take archival footage that was filmed in black and white and they colorize them and they show kind of big events in American history from those periods, but also kind of everyday life. And, and uh, that, that was very interesting. And then I watched uh, a, a documentary called uh, The Cars That Made America from the History Channel, which is a spinoff of The Men Who Made America, which was a, a great uh, documentary series did a few years ago and learned a lot about uh, – to be honest, I knew most of the foundations of GM and Ford, uh, but I didn't know much about how Chrysler came into being and how Chrysler evolved. And I learned a lot about the executives and engineers that went back and forth between all these auto manufacturers in, in the teens, uh, the 1920s and 1930s. And then also uh, learned a lot more about Alfred P. Sloan uh, personally in, in terms of his uh, his kind of ideology and philosophies about business. We hear so much about Henry Ford. Alfred P. Sloan was Ford's counterpart uh, at General Motors. And uh, let's not forget General Motors raced past Ford. Uh, at, at some point, probably in the 1930s, and continues to be uh, the biggest uh, auto manufacturer in the U.S., or the biggest of the big three U.S. manufacturers. That and then a large dose of BBC World and CNN to uh, to uh, keep up with the coronavirus. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I've been watching some Bloomberg news this week, too, just for yeah, me different, too, me different too. takes. And actually, it's been really, really good. All right, Kartik. So, so in terms of saga, which is why the listeners are here, I mean, why we're here too, um, we'll get to the English game in, in a minute, uh, the, the, the documentary series from Netflix that was released on Friday. Um, other than the English game, I'm trying to look at my list of things I've been watching. So I did watch the uh, W League Grand Final on ESPN Plus last weekend, which was uh, Melbourne City against Sydney FC. Uh, this one, the stadium was completely empty. I mean, no fans there, but there was a lot of friends and family in the stadium, and they all sat kind of uh, away from each other. But so the, it wasn't completely quiet. Uh, so there was some some background noise. Um, the game itself was it was pretty straightforward. I mean, Melbourne, um, the Manchester City of, of the of the W League, even getting the, the goal and then just holding on to that victory and, and winning it pretty uh, convincingly. I think it's their fourth grand final. Uh, they've the one in a in a row. Um, but but the, the commentary. I mean, this is the first time I've I've watched um, the W W League on ESPN Plus. The commentary was great. Uh, I think Stephanie was her name was one of the commentators. But really, really well done and good broadcast. And one of the few soccer games that have been on. And, and this one's probably been the biggest one in terms of uh, this is a final. You mean the final game of, of the the W League season? Uh, other than that, Kartik, this is funny. I, I I've. Uh, I thought, okay, football manager. I know you're like a football manager, hardcore nut. Yeah. And every single, well, not almost, almost every single year, I always say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna download it and give it a go. And I think Football Manager 2020 right now is having a, a free trial for like six days. And I thought, okay, I've got some free time. Let me go ahead, go ahead and download it. Let me go ahead and experience it, and see if this one's different than others. And 
I, I love the idea of the game. I love um, the people that within the community in terms of how passionate they are about this game. But every single time I play it, I just get just overwhelmed and uh, just just really kind of like I'm like, oh, man, this is this is going to be such a huge time sink that I'm not going I'm not willing to go ahead and go deeper into this because I know this this could consume my life. So I downloaded it. Uh, it took forever to to actually get the game installed and, and set yeah, up. That always happens. And then and then within about I think I was it was like maybe like midnight. I I was looking at it on on my um, on my laptop and I ended up falling asleep. And I was like the, the next day I'm like uh, I'm probably not going to get into this. But but for so- me but but for me Football Star Manager is is a, a game which is based on the original Football Manager from back in the late seventies early eighties. That one I love. That 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 one to me is a lot more fun. Football Manager just, it just seems to be such a I, I just can't get into it Kartik. so the big issue with football manager and i is that i'm such a junkie that uh, you just nailed it right there chris and and i'm now uh, i've now once again become conscious of it partly because our niece lives with us and and i need to get her to school first thing in the morning but uh, I, I have had trouble sleeping the last, let's say, over the course of the last three months, the nights I get the least amount of sleep, and then I, I'm realizing I only got four or five hours of sleep and I'm groggy, is because I was playing football manager late at night. And sometimes it is, uh, oftentimes it's you just keep playing and you're addicted and it's so complex and it's so detailed that you play till till one in the morning and uh, you lose sleep that way. Other times it's because, yes, I put down football manager at 10, but I'm still, my mind, my my thoughts are still processing about the next move, the next match. Mm-hmm. Uh, who uh, Do I drop a certain guy? Uh, what am I going to ask the chairman for? Et cetera, that it, it impacts my sleep. That game is that uh, addictive. So even though I'm an addict and I'm constantly playing the, the game, I, I kind of, concur with your sentiments i'm not sure that i would suggest it to most people because uh it does impact you it impacts you you, you personally it, it's so detailed it's not like fifa where you can pick up a, a, a pick up the game and play one game two games and just put it down uh, although maybe there were fifa addicts like there were football oh, yeah. addicts. oh for sure are, yeah. yeah oh for sure that, yeah i mean it's i mean sure a lot of our listeners too were probably talking about like nights that they played fifa i mean throughout the night and ended up not going to, to sleep and then having to go to work or go go to school the next day um but yeah it's uh, I, I in terms of the way that it's programmed and and developed and everything that goes into it is amazing with football manager the level of detail it's just it's uh for me right now even with a lot of more free time it's like you mean it i'm not ready to commit to it but i'll probably next year i'll probably download it again and give it another go and and and, and i know there's uh shortened versions of the games there's different options you can do that's not going to be as uh detailed and intensive but for me oftentimes i want to go for the full you mean the full version and 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 but i don't know anyway even the shortened ones they're, they're layers because the shortened ones even the football manager mobile um, of edition, you have to keep keep tabs on player morale. You have to give uh, uh, pep talks and have conversations with individual players. You have to work with the chairman. Uh, so those those are slimmed down, mm-hmm. but there's still a, a incredible level of detail. So, and I also. Um, and I guess I will bring this up, Chris. I, I, maybe you'll you'll uh, uh, boot me off the podcast this moment. I I do have an active save in Football Manager with Cardiff City. What? And I'm doing quite <laughs> yes, and I'm doing quite well. 
Wow. All right, we'll talk about that now, a little now, bit later. Here, here, here's the thing I've done with Cardiff, though, which you'll appreciate. Um, I'm trying to buy as many Welsh players and make it as much of a Welsh team as possible. Mm-hmm. And then um, I'm doing a fair amount of transfer business with Swansea. There were a couple of years we were both in the Premier League, and we had a, a couple uh, derbies in the Premier League. We had a couple in the Championship before we? I got promoted, <laughs> and then they got promoted the year after I did. But now when I'm selling Welsh players – or loaning out Welsh players, I'm loaning them either to uh, well, they're none of they're they're all too good to play for Newport. So this season, I'm playing actively now that I've been playing this week, which is I think my seventh or eighth season. I, I've sold one player to Swansea and loaned another youth prospect to Swansea because they're both Welsh. So mm-hmm. that sometimes when um, I play football manager. I put these sort of restrictions on myself as to how I can uh, I can conduct the game. I, I even though I'm uh, I've qualified for the Champions League with Cardiff, I'm not going out and buying uh, the most extravagant players. I'm trying to buy Welsh players, which did mean I did bring Aaron Ramsey back to the club. Uh, I will say, but. Hmm. I'm putting these sorts of restrictions uh, on myself to make the game more interesting and kind of tie my hands in a way that makes it a little more fun to play for me. But then again, that makes it more complex and yeah. you, know, you lose more sleep and there are only certain types of players you'll sign, etc. Yeah, I, I think for some people, this could be a great game for for the next couple of months if you are off work or not in school or Wherever you are in your life, uh, this could be a good opportunity to go ahead and uh, some of the, the, the things that are near and dear to your heart or some of the things that are, you're passionate about uh, in terms of football, you can relive that experience or create that new experience through Football Manager. So, <clears throat> so, so, so definitely check it out if you haven't had a chance to do so. Um, and and, and it, it could be one of those things, though, too, that for somebody with like a less addictive a personality you mean that might be able to kind of say all right i'm committing like i don't know an hour or two hours a day um and then just to stick by that whatever it it may be kartik recently uh, i think this past weekend uh, i have them queued up but you went ahead and watched uh, many of the films in the world cup uh, official film series from amazon prime video um, you wrote an article about it. You kind of keyed in on the 1978, the 1982, and the 1986 World Cups. Uh, for me personally, the 1982 World Cup is my favorite of all time. Uh, I haven't had a chance to watch this video yet, but it's supposed to be really, really good. Um, what are your thoughts overall on that series? So Sean Connery narrated that uh, that World Cup film. I thought... The, the series was actually pretty good if you consider where production levels were of videos uh, in in Europe or probably in, in England, in the UK at the time. Maybe uh, because these were produced at studios uh, on the continent, that maybe that's why they resembled more American film because American the coverage of sports and uh, – the, the ability to put together kind of archival footage and archival films was far advanced in the United States in the 1980s beyond uh, what was produced out of the UK. So uh, I actually was pretty impressed by these. Uh, by the way, the 82 film narrated by Sean Connery, which gives it a really nice touch. Uh, the 86 film uh, narrated by uh, uh, Michael Caine, which gives it a, a really nice touch. Uh, touch the 78 film was interesting because there was a, a script written by Kier Radnich who you and I have had the privilege of uh, of interviewing and, and spending some time with he, he uh, spends much of his time in, in Florida as you know in, yeah. in the Tampa area uh, the the uh, editor of world soccer longtime editor of world soccer magazine and that film was also kind of interesting to me because there was a lot of honesty in the film about um, 
Argentina and the uh, and the military junta. And then in the eighty two film, the thing that I found the most honest was they did not. Uh, skirt the issue of the Germany-Austria, the, the disgraceful Germany-Austria result, which put Algeria out of that World Cup. That, that, that match is the match that created what continues today, which is final day fixtures, final group fixtures, always being played at the same time, kicking off at the same time, although that will change in the 2026 World Cup. The 86 film was, uh, was really well produced, was really detailed uh, for that Mexico City, or excuse me, Mexico World Cup. Uh, that also, I think, is a World Cup that, um, that everybody uh, remembers as one of the better World Cups. That film was a little different than the other two in that they, they had certain stars they had picked out. Uh, and chose to focus the film around Maradona, of course, being the most prominent, but also guys like Gary Lineker and others that had a major impact on that tournament. They they focused more on the individual player than uh, they did in the previous two films, which to me, Chris also indicates that was when the era of kind of superstar players, uh, larger than life players began. And, and so much of that, uh, is due to World Cups, but also uh, Saatchi's Milan at the time, mm-hmm. or just after that, was dominating European football with that Dutch core. And I think that's when we started to say, yeah, that guy's my favorite player. I love watching Rude Hulet. Or, or, yeah, that guy. I love watching uh, uh, I love watching uh, Marco van Basten. So I, um, uh, I, I think that that's the... Uh, that's kind of the trajectory. You see the trajectory of the international game also from watching these films. The more recent World Cup films I haven't dove into yet. Right. I, I'm kind of um, wanting to do the 2002 one because I, I think that World Cup still now is, as time moves on, and maybe there's just this, there's some subtle bias in me because the U.S. did so well in that World Cup, but that World Cup to me now seems so unique compared to other World Cups because of uh, – the, the, the dual hosts, and also just because there were so many outsiders, Turkey, Senegal, the United States, and others that did really, or Japan, that South Korea, that did really well in that tournament, that I kind of want to uh, uh, relive that tournament. And it's a tournament we never got to quite live in this country the way we lived other tournaments because of the time difference. Right. Yeah, so so that series, I, I have that uh, queued up in Amazon Prime. And, and if you want to go ahead and find out um, the links to each of those uh, 82, 78, 86 World Cups, go to the, the homepage of worldsoccertalk.com and Kartik has his review of those three and then you can link directly to those individual videos if you want to watch them individually or watch the whole series. Um, they have it from 1954 all the way through to, I think, 2018, um, the, the, the official films of each of those World Cups. So, so yeah, highly recommended. Um, I'm going to check it out this weekend too. Kartik, now, so the English game, so this is a new documentary that, uh, actually not, not a documentary, it's, it's a, a series, um, I think a six-part series that launched on Friday, both in the UK and in the US. It uh, is from the, one of the creators of Downton Abbey. Yes. And uh and in many ways it it, it reminds me of Downton Abbey. Um it, it it's it's that similar uh time. Uh it's uh going back into Victorian era England and uh talking about the different characters involved. This one's a little bit different well a lot different to Downton Abbey in that uh, this is this is based on a true story. This is based on the the first team from the north of England uh to win the FA Cup. Uh, also, um, one of the first teams to have professional players um, involved 
in at what was then an amateur game. So th- this was really um, a tidal shift in, in the history of, of soccer from around the world, a really uh, memorable time in terms of um, where we are today with soccer versus where we were b- back then and, and really uh, has you know, kind of a tipping point in, in many ways too. Um, but, Kartik, um, well, we'll get into the but in a minute though. What, what was your take on the series and, and, and did you enjoy it? I enjoyed it. Everybody has an opinion about it. Now, first off, I've caught factual errors within, I want to say, 15 minutes of, of the first episode. Now, by the by the end, by episode six, everybody's talking about, obviously, uh, Blackburn Olympic was the first team to win, uh, first uh, team from the North to win the FA Cup, and they, they're not even represented in the film, right? And then Blackburn Rovers won three FA Cups after that, and they're not represented in the film. They, they created this this fictional team Blackburn FC, which um, maybe it was for copyright reasons. I don't know, but that everybody's talking about that after the fact, but there was actually a, uh, a uh, factual error in the first 15 minutes, which was Darwin gets that five, uh, five draw um, against old Etonians, something we, uh, which was ab- absolutely factually correct. Then they dramatize a, uh, a, a wage crisis and uh, a problem at the, at the factory uh, up in up in Lancashire and their return trip for the replay is in doubt now and then they finally uh, uh, work it out and they go and play the replay and lose well actually there was a first replay which uh, uh, which took place where uh, Darwin had to go back to London and they drew 2-2 and then this whole uh, drama of uh, of costs and wages uh, came into the, 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 the story in reality but they skipped that part and I thought that was pretty critical if you want to tell it factually because it was the cost of going to the first replay mm-hmm. that ended up straining the finances they had actually they had actually accounted for that the possibility that they might have to go back to London uh, a second time but not a third time and this still remains an issue in English football really for smaller clubs uh, to to travel and have to play uh, replays unless they get uh, an amount of the gate which, which is why it was worked out now that they get uh, a percentage of the gate receipts and that's why uh, so many of the smaller clubs don't want to get rid of replays but that was something I caught in the first 15 minutes um, as to the series I enjoyed it but I, I admit I'm a, I'm a sucker actually for Victorian era England uh, uh, Drama set in Victoria era England, and especially dramas that involve working class people and factories mm-hmm. and kind of the, the daily life. So this was really interesting for me from that perspective, and I think it told an important story of that, that continues an underlying theme in English football, which is north versus south. And even to the point where um, now the majority of Manchester City fans I know do, would not – do not want Manchester United to win the title ever and vice versa. But I know some fans of both clubs that still to this day are like, well, I know a United supporter who said, told me, oh, I'd rather City win the title than, you know, those bastards from London. I don't want Chelsea or Arsenal winning it. I'll take uh, uh, City over them. There is still an underlying theme of that among some English football fans. And oh, for sure. I, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think the North versus South thing um, comes into play. And I, I think for, uh, newer football fans who may not quite get that and became fans during the Premier League era and uh, see everything as kind of homogeneous, that is still there. Another another area you can pick up on that is if you watch uh, 
if you review and watch in during this uh, this lockdown or this time we're down, um, the the uh, why am I blanking? The damn United, yeah. because that's very much always been a part of uh, a lot of the coaches from the North's thinking that you have to have a, a uh, in that era, a team full of players that you can relate to. And in Clough's case, it was, I have to have a team from the North or the Midlands. I can't uh, coach a team of, of, of Southerners. And he says bloody Tories at one point. Why would I want to go down to, to Brighton? So it was also in those days very political. Um, so I, I enjoyed it. I, I think uh, two quick things on notes on the main characters. Chris, um, Fergus Sutter was uh, 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 seen as a mercenary. That's that's the way I had always viewed him in history. Uh-huh. This series allowed me to see a very human side of a guy because the the impression I've had of him as someone who studied the history of the English game is this was a guy who came from Scotland and uh, moved to England because he kept getting paid uh, more money and he kept uh, and he jumped from uh, from Darwin to Blackburn Rovers, not to Blackburn FC as as is uh, depicted in the film, but uh, or in the in mm-hmm. the series uh, because of money. I see that there was a real human side to him, and that um, he he at least how he's portrayed in this is really kind of a good guy and a guy that cares about uh, the community he had moved into, which was Darwin by this point, and the people around him. Um, now, um, in terms of Arthur Kennard, he's uh, in history remembered as the first great superstar uh, in the English game and as really the father of the Football Association and the father, in, in, in some ways, of Wembley, uh, which he, he didn't live to see it completed. He uh, passed away a few months before it opened. Um, this documentary – or again, excuse me, I keep calling it a documentary. <laughs> this series gave me an insight into uh, some of the uh, opposition he had as – um, someone who wanted to open the game up. And that's why he's remembered as the father of the FA, is he wanted to open the game up uh, to people all over the country. He understood, even as a public school uh, a lad, a guy that was uh, at the very top of English society, that you needed that, that it was largely a working-class game. And that's how he's remembered in history. I see in this series the fight he had, even with people like his own father, yep. about that sort of philosophy and how difficult it was for him to kind of turn um, turn the page on what was at the time an elitist, a, a game controlled by elitists playing in their own kind of playground, whereas there were working class teams that were playing um, in, in a different world. And that includes teams in the Football League, which the, uh, which the series doesn't get into. There were Most of the Football League teams at the time, or maybe all of them at the time, were uh, in the Midlands and in the North. And they were playing in a completely different world than these uh, high-end public school graduate uh, teams in London. And it was, a, it was a different world. And that world wasn't reconciled until he became the head of the FA. Now, they don't get into that uh, in this series. But uh, if you want to read the history, there was a lot of good historical works on the FA Cup and on the Football Association, which will kind of fill in what happens after. Um, unless there's going to be a season two, I don't know. But uh, that, that's, uh, I think, good reading if you want to follow up on what you learn in this series. Yeah, <clears throat> um, both of you, Kantik and, and I, have mentioned the word documentary, just a, a, a natural slip-up. But it, in many ways, it um, it does serve as a documentary because I think for a lot of us that may have re- read about the history uh, of the game, you know, The Ball is Round, and so many other books that talk about the history of, of soccer, um, seeing it visually in a film or in a series 
oftentimes will probably resonate or, or will kind of uh, sink into us a lot better than sometimes reading it in a book, some, sometimes for some of us. So, um, but as a documentary, it, it does fail in, in, in regards to getting a lot of the facts wrong uh, in that series, but at least gives you a better appreciation for uh, that time and, and what was involved. And, and to me, this series, The English Game, is re- so- soccer is really a subtext for this series and not the heart of the story by any means. I think the heart of the story is very much a, a North versus South divide. Is um, A lot of it is in terms of the, the politics, in terms of um, the right to vote, the, work, the working class, the, the rich versus the poor. Um, and also kind of really kind of the, the human aspect of that too in terms of uh, how people lived during the time and uh, everything that they were going through from, again, the, the North versus the South. And in this series, you'll see I mean, when they go to London, it's all bright and, and sunny and uh, clean. And, and then they go back to the North, go back to Darwin, um, which is a small town, not far, very, I mean, close to Blackburn, close to, to Preston. Uh, but it's dark and dingy, and it's. You mean uh, the streets are are not paved at all? It's just. You mean yeah. so. So, I enjoyed it, um, but to me though, it's to me it's not as good as Na- Downton Abbey. But Downton Abbey is completely different. It's Downton Abbey's. You mean talking about the the rich for the most part, and it, it's got some humor in it. This one doesn't have uh, much humor in it at all. Um, if 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 this was on Kartik and the coronavirus hadn't happened, uh, I would have watched it. But um, I mean, I wouldn't have rushed into watching this one. I, I enjoyed it, but uh, it, it, it by I, I it's not my my favorite series by any means. I, I did enjoy it. I, I stuck all the way through to the end of it. Uh, if the coronavirus hadn't happened, I probably wouldn't have watched this whole thing by now. I probably would have just taken my time. Um, it didn't pull me in like some other documentaries like Sunderland Till I Die but it's it's not that type of uh, film um, but I enjoyed it yeah. but just not, just not a raving review for me. Yeah I, I agree with that although the one thing I would say is I think it was probably took me in more than most of the club documentaries that have been put on Amazon or Netflix Sunderland Till I Die to me is an exception that's really really good I can't wait for the second season but the, the Leeds documentary and the Manchester City documentary and the Juventus documentary I'd never watch those again I'd be, I'll be honest. Mm, right. I never even even as a Manchester City fan, I, it, it was to me club propaganda. It was really boring uh, in, in points. It's almost more interesting when you have a club that's in strife like Sunderland, because um, I think I've mentioned this to you privately. My favorite football documentary of the last ten years remains the uh, the, the, the QPR documentary, which uh, was made in 2011 about the club and you see all the behind the scenes as the club is not reaching its uh its stated expectations from from the owners and finally in year four they manage to be promoted but not without uh the threat of a points deduction for uh um for registering a third party player uh, and and that whole thing and, and agent fees etc so to me that was uh um, the four-year plan is the name of that documentary. Yep. Looking for it, and it is available on Prime. You have to buy it, which is what I've done. So I own the documentary. In fact, I'll be honest. When I got Prime Video, like five or six years, well, be like six years ago now, it was the very first thing I bought. <laughs> I didn't go find a movie first. I said I got to see this documentary again. Mm-hmm. Big, um, so I, I highly recommend that. By the way, um, if you're looking for something that you're willing to pay for to hold you over during this period. And it's that's a documentary I rewatch again every year or so. And I'll probably rewatch it again real soon. 
Yeah, and and definitely the English game is recommended to watch. It's just not as good as I thought it could have been. But uh, it was interesting actually watching the soccer being played in this um, because really, for the most part, it hasn't changed that much. And uh, and also I enjoyed um, Fergus Suter talking about playing a passing game and play, playing the wide game, which at the time was I mean, revolutionary in terms of looking at the way that soccer was being played at the time, which was very much uh, a lot more physical and a lot more, say, direct. Uh, and, and it's interesting how, how kind of things go full, full circle. Yeah, so that's uh, that's an actually a very good point, Chris. That I should have made made Suter in his historical reputation is is that I knew of before I watched this documentary is seen as a uh, a, as a bit of a mercenary. Uh, but then he's also credited by a lot of historians of the game as the first player to understand the concept of space and finding space on a pitch. Now, maybe that, that discussing that specifically is a little too complex for what's kind of a drama, which seems to be meant to appeal to people who uh, are not only football fans, but just fans of, uh, of, of Victorian era dramas uh, in, as set in England. But he's credited by a lot of football historians with the first as the first player that understood that, because at the time, uh, it was very much like rugby. The ball would be in the middle of the pitch, and there would essentially be scrums, uh, obviously in a different way, to find uh, to, to try and gain possession. Whereas Suter understood you could push into wide areas, you could uh, you could play in the middle, you could do all these different things, and movement and space were important. And um, again, they don't show it in this series, but that was the revolutionary concept that the Blackburn Rovers teams that did win the FA Cup. Uh, in uh, 1885, 1886, that time period, uh, exploited that the public school teams that they faced in the FA Cup and even some of the other factory teams from the north that they would face in the earlier rounds had not quite discovered. So mm-hmm. that's um, that, that's something that's really important to remember when you mentioned Sudo, and I'm glad you uh, you brought that up because I should have actually when, when I was giving my comments on it. Yeah, so- soccer-wise, I mean, to me, that was uh, the most illuminating aspect of the series. And, um, and, and it doesn't go into a lot of detail, but it does, it does talk about it and mention it and um but that's a really good perspective and that's one part of it uh, i certainly enjoyed um i mean overall i enjoyed it can't take it when we thought we'd have nothing to talk about in uh, what we've been watching uh, on on soccer quite a lot there let's move on to tv streaming news and um let's go through these items one by one yeah, so as I think everybody who's listening knows, the Olympics have been moved to 2021, which is a, a really bad break for NBC Sports and Telemundo. Uh, that leaves NBC with virtually nothing over the summer, so maybe they can broadcast Premier League games to the season's extended. Uh, the only thing that would be left really for them uh, is the French Open and the uh, Open Championship uh, for, from from uh, Great Britain in, in golf. And I have to assume both those competitions. I don't think the French Open will take place at all. And I, I think the Open Championship is likely to be moved. Uh, so we have no Euro 2020. We have no Copa America and now no, no Olympics. Uh, this is going to be a strange, uh, long summer. But I also think... Uh, Potentially, it's going to be a crowded summer because uh, the NBA, who knows, they might play through the summer. The NHL, uh, MLS might be playing Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday to try and get the season done. USL will be playing Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday to try and get the season done. And then obviously Premier League, Bundesliga uh, will resume at some point. I, uh, Chris, should say at this point, I and obviously it's very fluid. Things change every day. I do not think La Liga 
and uh, and Serie A can resume their seasons at this point mm-hmm. with the with the uh, extent of the outbreaks in those two countries, uh, which now complicates the Champions League, which again could be. Uh, over the summer, uh, our, our good friend Simon Evans has reported this morning about player contracts. As I keep raising the, the June 30th date, saying leagues would have to be done by then. Apparently, there are some clauses in the contracts. I would re- recommend uh, check out his story. I haven't read it completely either. Uh, over at Reuters, uh, broke. We're recording this Thursday morning U.S. time. It broke just as we were uh, beginning to record. But uh, there, there appears to be provisions where these leagues could extend for a couple months uh, player contracts. That having been said, I don't know what the champion UEFA is going to do about the Champions League because I think it's going to be very difficult for Italian and Spanish teams uh, to continue. And, mm-hmm. and may, it may be difficult for English and German teams to continue also. So yep. uh, we'll see. Yeah, one option could be that some of these games could be played in China or in, or in Asia, especially if um, in terms of the coronavirus, it's it's passed there and, uh, and we can isolate uh, certain areas in China as being safe. And you could have teams from, I mean, you know, Serie A, La Liga, Premier League, uh, the UEFA Champions League uh, teams go out to China and play games there. The issue then, though, too, is that uh, are the are the players, I mean, healthy? Are they? Uh, and we know just from the past couple of weeks is that um, different clubs uh, throughout Spain and Italy, specifically, and and in England, uh, have players with the coronavirus. Um, so that's possibly one of the things that they're considering is that uh, can we play these games at a neutral site and just finish off the season finish out, out the uh, contractual obligations like for the UEFA Champions League can we finish it this way um in order to to move on for the next season and and not have everything stacking up where now we're running out of time yeah, and I think uh, with the World Cup in Qatar in 2022 uh, being oddly timed and, and disrupting seasons uh, as it is, maybe they just kind of shift the calendar now. Uh, the, uh, about the China thing, I think that's a great suggestion, and we know the Premier League especially would love to take it up. I'm not sure the Chinese authorities would want they, – they, they beat back <laughs> the virus now. They, they'd be probably concerned if you bring teams particularly from, from Italy and Spain in, but probably also Germany, France, and, and uh, England. True that the virus might come back. That's so true, yeah. That's, that, that's something that they'll have to look at. But uh, there's really no good options at this point, unfortunately. In the next news item, uh, this is a story that we broke this week at uh, worldsoccertalk.com and on this podcast uh, subscription, and that is that Ian Joy, the uh, Fox Sports analyst, uh, co-commentator and presenter, uh, oftentimes for the Bundesliga and previously for the World Cup and Gold Cup, etc., has announced um, that he will be leaving Fox Sports uh, once the Bundesliga season ends and he will be moving to the East Coast of the United, of the United States, will be continuing his work for NYCFC and uh, is considering different uh, job opportunities on the East Coast. Um, in the interview, which is part of the Heart of the Game series, he goes into a lot more detail um, and talks about that some of these uh, opportunities may not even be in soccer. It might be uh, beyond that. Uh, he didn't go into detail. Obviously, I think a lot of us, I'm sure Kartik, you, you would agree with this too, uh, would be hoping that ESPN Plus goes ahead and uh, signs him up and has him as uh, one of the, Bund- the Bundesliga experts for next season. Um, that hasn't been uh, confirmed. I mean, that, that's just, just speculation. We'd love to see that happen. Uh, but Ian Joy's like, been a great talent uh, from being sports, going to Fox Sports uh, five years ago. And um, his is really, I think, a much loved 
uh, football analyst and um, moving on to hopefully bigger and better things. Yeah, I'm really uh, upbeat about this because Ian Joy is phenomenal, and he's one of the the few American commentators that's broken through in Europe. He's done some World Feed games for uh, the Bundesliga, and and I think – he has the versatility, and we saw it during the World Cup even in 2018 where he can host, he can be a match analyst, he can be a studio uh, 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 analyst, a match co-commentator. So I think he's a very natural fit at ESPN with them picking up the Bundesliga rights and uh, can do multiple things for them. So uh, I'm, I'm assuming that will happen in some regards, and he obviously still has his uh, New York City FC commitments. Yeah, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to that interview with him uh, that was on this podcast stream this week, definitely go back and listen to it because uh, you'll get a really good good appreciation for how heartfelt and how passionate he is about the sport um, and how likable he is as a person. He really, really shines through um, on the podcast um, and some great questions by, by Nate Abarea uh, in, in terms of asking him, uh, Ian, about his multiculturalism, about um, playing for a Catholic team, uh, even though he was Protestant in Scotland, uh, playing in Germany, playing for Portland Timbers, um, playing for Manchester United as, as a, uh, a youth, etc. So go back and listen to that. It's great stuff. Um, next up, Kartik, is the big question is, when we talked about this a minute ago, um, and speaking of the Bundesliga, is whether to play behind closed doors or not. And here's a quote from uh, DFL, uh, the German uh, Football League uh, chief executive, Christian Seifert. He says, if we don't play games behind closed doors as soon as possible, there is no point wondering if we should have a league of 18 or 20 teams. We won't even have 20 professional teams anymore. And, that, and, that's, and that's huge. That came out within the last 24 hours. That's the German uh, head of the Football League there saying that uh, making it clear is that the games have to be played behind closed doors. Uh, now, going on, um, some analysis by accounting firm uh, KPMG suggests that cancelling the rest of the season would cost the big five leagues of England, Spain, Germany, Italy and France a combined total of over €4 billion. Euros. Uh, and the article goes on to say it is therefore not difficult to see why leagues will consider restarting behind closed doors to at least guarantee revenue from broadcasters. Kartik, this is something that um, what we talked about just a minute ago is that uh, China could be a place that some of these games could be played at a neutral site. But at the same time, would China even be open to having these teams from Europe, uh, Western Europe, going to China um, there has to be. It look, it looks like it has to be some type of solution. So whether it's China, uh, whether it's a uh, played in 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 Europe someplace, or played, you know, who knows where the actual games will will take place, but be in place somewhere in order to to at least guarantee revenue, because these broadcasters have paid hundreds of millions of dollars for the rights to show these games. Um, they're not broadcasting the games, obviously, and uh, they're losing out on a ton of money. Um, the leagues have the money in their pockets. Um, the leagues would have to return that money back to the broadcasters, the TV broadcasters. Um, and the TV broadcasters are probably uh, have already probably spent a lot of that money in terms of the, I mean, all the commitments that they have. And in the meantime, I'm sure the advertisers are pulling back. This is this is a nightmare scenario for the world of sports. Um, and I, I think Kartik, I think it has to happen in order for 
the sports, not just soccer, but all sports, but the sport to survive in terms of the way that the way the business is set up. Um, so again, I, I don't know what the solution is other than having to, figuring out a way to play these games, ensuring the health and safety of the players and everyone involved, and then switching on the channels and, and having the TV uh, cameras go live and, and broadcasting these games in, in empty stadiums. Yeah, I, I I don't know what the solution is here. I don't think there is one because this is an unprecedented happening, an unprecedented event. I think the the leagues will be in the position where they either have to return money or they have to, and we know they, they don't want to do this either, uh, extend each broadcaster's contract in each of the territories that they've been uh, – they signed media partner by a year, yep. um, which then puts off – and, and, and this cuts back to the, the specter of Apple TV and, and Prime, Amazon Prime and other streaming services, puts off the ability of leagues like the Bundesliga and the Premier League to play those streaming services off against broadcasters, against traditional broadcasters to increase rights fees. Because we see rights fees have kind of – for example, the Premier League rights fees continue to, to go up uh, pretty dramatically in foreign territories. They have stagnated. In, in the UK itself, Sky and BT, and now Amazon with this uh, package they started this season, have paid approximately what was paid for uh, the last three-year cycle. So the leagues don't want to do that either because that, that's also putting off them making – getting that cash that sustains them by an additional year. So mm-hmm. there's no good solution to this. At the same time, I, I don't know how, um, h- how the game survives unless – there's some sort of sustainability fund for smaller clubs that bigger clubs put uh, put money into. But then again, I think a lot of the bigger com- clubs are hanging by a thread. I uh, yep. And I tweeted this uh, on Wednesday and, and saw there was a lot of reaction to it. And, and maybe it's reporters who have no other stories and agents feeding reporters things. Uh, but there was talk about Barcelona and transfers. There's been a lot of talk about Barcelona and transfers. Now, how can Barcelona, who is already in debt, who needed a loan – from a U.S. Uh, uh, lending uh, agency, a U.S. bank, to purchase Griezmann, mm-hmm. go and buy players when there's no revenue coming in, right? right? So even the big clubs, I think, are probably in significant financial trouble, with the exception of uh, maybe uh, Manchester City and PSG because of who owns them. But um, they'll be in trouble soon, too, because this shutdown has, uh, I don't know about Qatar, but it's really affected the United Arab Emirates. And Abu Dhabi, of course, owns Manchester City. So I don't think there's any real good solution to this, Chris. I mean, I I, I think maybe they, they have to bite the bullet and extend the TV, the current TV rights deals by a year and then have some sort of sustainability fund to support other clubs. Now, this goes back... Uh, in England specifically, to the fact that Premier, the Premier League is a breakaway uh, that people all often forget. It's a breakaway modeled, as we talked about on a previous podcast, after the NFL, and they don't really share that television money with uh, the football league clubs. And my concern is, when you talk about England, there will be multiple clubs that go under because of this uh, in League One and League Two, unless there's some effort from people at the top of the game to help them now in Germany, uh, as you've just you've just read the quote, but there's already that effort underway with Bayern Munich, Borussia Dortmund, uh, Leipzig, and uh, one other club. I, I, maybe it was Mönchengladbach or Frankfurt. Maybe not Mönchengladbach because they're having some difficulties with this. But one other club that's that's uh, uh, decided to put money into a fund mm-hmm. 
for Bundesliga 2 clubs. But that the culture in Germany is very different than the culture in England, and I think it's important that fans recognize this. There's a, uh, and there's often this, uh, about me personally, this this thing where people think I, I'm claiming the Bundesliga is a better league than the Premier League. I don't claim that. I claim I like it better because the values more reflect my values, and this is another example of that, what's going on now, versus I do not expect Manchester United, Manchester City, and Chelsea to band together and say, you know what, we need to send some money to Oldham, or we need to send some money to Tran here. I just don't think they would do that. It's not in those clubs' DNA. This this all goes back to Kartik, the importance of having these games being played out, yeah. whether it is behind closed doors, which we don't want to see it that way because it's just not a great experience. But you mean it's almost from a business point of view, the only way that this can move forward is having these games played behind closed doors. Hopefully, I mean, with all this, the health, uh, safety in place as best as possible, and, you know, finishing the seasons, finishing the competitions, um, and just pushing, driving through it in order to satisfy the, the TV broadcasters and at the same time satisfying the commitments and, and everything starts to move forward then. At least, uh, you mean, teams will have lost money, um, but at least teams will, well, the, t- the TV teams, you mean the the, the Premier Leagues, the, the Bundesligas, the, the Major League Soccers, you mean the, the, the big leagues will survive and will move on. Uh, but like you said, Kartik, in terms of the smaller teams, the smaller teams where the League Ones, the League Twos, the USL to the, you mean the the uh, UPSL, all, the, all these other leagues from around the world where, you mean, a lot of them are going to, go, uh, are going to have to go bankrupt unless there is some type of... Um, bailout for them and i i don't see any bailouts ha- happening for them it wouldn't have to be the the bigger club saying okay hey we're going to figure out a way to uh, have some type of fund to help you guys so that uh i mean the premier league is the premier league because oftentimes because of the smaller clubs the football league and in the rest of the divisions uh where you have the leicester cities and the sheffield Uniteds and all these other teams wolves coming up through the system working their way back up to the top and making it um, a really enjoyable league because you have that competition. But um, yeah, I, I guess at, at the end of the day, it does show how valuable live sports rights are because, Kartik, we've we've lost all live sports. I mean, this week, we um, the A-League, which was uh, actually, I think last weekend was the Turkish Super League, uh, went ahead and suspended the league. The A-League from Australia was the last league that was really running, last big professional soccer league that was running. They suspended that league. I think the Belarusian or Belarusian league is still going, but uh, that's not available on television. And, 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 and actually, uh, speaking of that, Alexander Holtlev, uh, you know, a great player, yeah. uh, the best player that country's ever produced, Arsenal and Barcelona, uh, has uh, has come out and said they're endangering player safety uh, by playing. So yeah. even those leagues that are still playing, they have people really critiquing things. And I think when we talk about restarting and we talk about playing and we talk about fulfilling obligations to television, there is another factor, which is the players. And I don't think the players, the majority of players want to risk, uh, want to risk their own health. Well, and also, uh, and, and, and also the, the family, the family, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, they, yeah, go, yeah. they go back to their family and the kids and the wife. And uh, now all of a sudden, I mean, there's the possibility of infecting them too. So yeah, this is um, just a night- nightmare scenario beyond belief. Um, 
All right, Kartik, let's move on. The next news item is, is coming up in terms of TV coverage. So this weekend, so what we have is, um, for, for example, Fox Sports um, has been doing some of the, on FS2, uh, every few nights they've had some uh, of the U.S. women's national team games on television. Uh, not a lot of uh, U.S. men's national team games, but a lot of games from the, the Women's World Cup. And I think we had uh, also, I think, France against Croatia. They played the 2018 uh, World Cup final on FS2. So so keep an eye out for FS2. They've been broadcasting a lot of these games, um, some of the classic matches. Um, for La Liga, La Liga would be in sports, what they're doing on uh, every night beginning Friday at 9.30 Eastern Time is rerunning a classic Classico. So Barcelona against Real Madrid, what they're doing is uh, instead of having the entire game, um, they've got highlights. So they're, they're taking the 90 minutes of the game and uh, broadcasting it uh, over the course of 30 minutes. So uh, every night starting Friday, uh, 9.30 Eastern, uh, to watch El Clasico from the a classic El Clasico. Uh, the Premier League and NBC Sports, what they're doing is on Saturday, uh, they have classic matches. Uh, so going back from the 90s onwards and uh, same thing with them too. They're taking 90 minutes and condensing it down to 30 minutes. So so that schedule of those games is on uh, worldsoccertalk.com on, on the homepage. And then on Sunday, uh, the Premier League and NBC Sports, they're doing classic matches. Again, last weekend, it was the Manchester Derby triple header. This Sunday is a triple header of the Liverpool against Man City games from the last few seasons and some of the best ones of those. So um, so, so there is soccer being played. A lot of it is the classic matches. Um, I, I love soccer, Kartika, obviously, as, as do you, but... Um, <sighs> To me, I don't have a, a huge appetite for watching classic matches. Um, I, I know, I mean, I've seen them. I mean, I know what the scores are. Um, I would rather go ahead and watch something or listen to something or do something different. Some, you mean something new and different than going back and watching classic matches. I, I'm not sure if you're the same way. Yeah, so I think the 90 and 30 uh, for the El Clasicos that Bian's going to show are, are a little better and better suited to that because uh, I'll give you an example from myself this past week. I didn't mention that I went back and watched one of my favorite matches of all time, which is from February, 2010, really kind of the 10th anniversary of it. Uh, a match between Manchester city and Chelsea at, at Stamford bridge. Uh, this had come, there was a lot of drama behind oh, this yeah. match. Wayne bridge, uh, his, his uh, girlfriend, his partner had had an affair with John Terry. So all the, that, that was the, the, the context of this match. And it was on ESPN in the United States. So, uh, got got a window into how ESPN's coverage was in those days, which was Adrian Healy as the uh, – and by the way, I taped this game at the time and had transferred it to a DVD, so I was able to watch it uh, on a DVD. Uh, it's not readily available. But um, Adrian Healy was the host, Robbie Musto, Steve Nichol in the studio, and then John Champion calling the match. I – have said since that day of that match, and this is why I, I taped it and then cut a, a DVD of it, this is one of my favorite matches of all time. Yet, I found myself fast-forwarding through most of it, <laughs> you know? And, and knowing the kind of what happened and when the when the moments I wanted to watch was, the uh, which included the non-handshake of Bridge and then Craig Bellamy's very, you know, really nasty look and, and hard handshake of uh, of JT, you know, giving him <laughs> the, this, this killer stare before the match. And then, um, obviously, uh, the goals and, and some of the, the events during the match. But I ended up 
probably watching the whole thing in 20 minutes or 25 minutes, Chris. So I thought I was different than you in that I, I romanticize about the history of the, of the game. I think everybody who listens to this podcast knows that. I, I uh, love watching old clips of football, but to sit and actually watch a full match that I've watched before um, and that I know the result was much harder than I thought it would be. I thought I was going to sit and watch the whole game in its entirety, and I didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got one queued up, which is uh, one of my favorite games of all time. One game I, I went to, I attend not one game, but I attended this game, which was Swansea City against Leeds United from 1981. And I have it queued up. I have it, I mean, one of the, the most memorable matches in my lifetime. Um, Swansea winning 5-1, the first game ever in the top flight of, of English football. And I haven't watched it yet because I, I know what happens. I will watch it. I mean, I'm a Swansea fan, so for me, that's I will sit down and spend some time and watch it. But for me, I'm prioritizing if I am going to watch something, I'm, I'm watching new and different things. So again, some of it is the English game. Some of it is uh, this weekend with the World Cup series on Amazon. Uh, and and looking for other games that are being played, some new things, and I will watch those. But again, I, I just don't think there's much of an appetite for classic matches, and I think that's one of the reasons why these leagues have to figure out a way to play games as safely as possible to ensure safety for the players and everyone involved, because... Um, uh, not not the soccer is going to die, but it's uh, taken a huge hit, a massive hit. Kartik, last item in the news section is um, some optimistic news for the future, uh, depending on how long this drags on with the uh, the virus. But April 1st, uh, Netflix is debuting Sunderland Till I Die Season 2. And Season 2, obviously, uh, this would be life now in League 1 of uh, a football like season one would have been uh, in the championship and all everything that w- must have happened or that, that did happen uh league i don't know i i'm going to go into this um no spoilers please kartik because I, I once i went into league one i didn't follow them as closely uh okay. I, I knew there was a bunch of changes going on even within the league one but i kind of lost interest at that point um so I, I will go into this kind of with with open eyes and, and looking forward to hopefully enjoying this one so, um, if you listen to the Guardian Football Weekly podcast, uh, Barry Glendening is on every show, and Jonathan Wilson is on more often than not. So, uh, it's difficult to avoid uh, having full knowledge of what's going on at Sunderland if you listen to that podcast. So, yeah, yeah I, I followed them last season. Uh, yeah, I watched the playoff final, which they lost, but knew a lot about them uh, during the course of the season because of Glendening and Wilson, and same thing this season. So, uh, that that's a um, a little kind of hidden thing you always know if you listen to the guardian football weekly podcast you always know about sunderland and you always know about cambridge united because of max rushton so mm-hmm. um even though it's a it's a podcast geared towards the premier league and the other uh, big leagues in europe a lot of la league and bundesliga in particular talk on that podcast um <laughs> they cover those two teams as extensively as anyone. Yeah. I, I guess in a way, though, too, it's, it's Swansea City and Manchester City on this podcast. Yeah, true, true, <laughs> Even it's, true. Uh, us talking about those. All right, listener mailbag. Uh, first up is MP. MP says, Chris, thanks for keeping us updated on the leagues that are playing anywhere and how we can watch them. Jonesing for any football at this point. So, MP, I think the last bastion of soccer, live soccer, if you want to watch it from around the world, um, is really my Cujo. 
So, um, so check it out. We've, uh, I mean, we've we've interviewed them. I think when they first launched, but what it is is a lot of uh, some of it's professional soccer too. So it's um, either amateur or professional soccer where they have broadcasters uh, from the game. I mean. As of last week, they had the Brazilian State League, so they had some of those games going on. Uh, they've had the Singapore Premier League um, and other leagues from around the world, too. So check out their site. They have a list in the calendar of live and upcoming um, games as well as uh, games available on demand. So if you, if you are joining for any soccer at this point, that would be my recommendation for the best place to go to watch uh, live football. Nash Rambler um, says, uh, I'd be interested to get your take on the new Netflix drama, The English Game. I believe it just dropped last week, so I haven't watched it yet. I searched around and seen some good reviews and some poor reviews. So, so Nash, hopefully you enjoyed our discussion there in the, uh, the first segment. And last but not least, last but not least uh, Paul Kelly says, and this one's Kartik, I think it's more for you. He says, I've listened to the 1998 USA World Cup series from, from Men in Blazers. Their contention is, is that the team had hopes of winning it all. I don't remember it like that. I'm old enough to remember the USA going to Guatemala and losing in the 1980s. What's your opinion and recollection of that World Cup team? Okay, yeah, this is a this is a great question. So we didn't think we would win it all, but we were very optimistic going into that World Cup. And Chris, you might remember this also. So uh, 1995, we get to the semifinals of Copa America, play really well down there. Um, and then uh, in uh, 98, we get to the final of the Gold Cup. We beat Brazil, and not a Brazil A team, but a Brazil kind of A-minus team. Romario, uh, Romario was playing in, in that match, for example, as were some other uh, notable Brazilian players. Uh, we beat them uh, 1-0 in February of 98. Uh, and then we had some bumps qualifying, but then at the end of qualifying, we played really well. We went down to Mexico City and got a point. Uh, we scored four goals against Canada. Uh, we scored four goals against El Salvador in, in the last two qualifiers. So things were coming together. I mentioned the Brazil game. We go to Austria and win a friendly uh, in Vienna against a fairly good Austrian team, uh, 3-0. Steve Sampson, our coach, has put in a new formation, the 3-6-1. And we're thinking, you know, we're, we're, we're keeping the ball better than we've kept the ball before because we figure out a way to put both Tab, Tab Ramos and Claudia Reyna on the pitch at the same time. Uh, that dilemma was kind of similar to the Lampard-Gerrard dilemma that sprung up for England uh, several years later. So we were really optimistic going into that World Cup. Uh, now, we didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. We didn't know about what's since come out. And Steve Sampson does a really good uh, interview with Alexi Lawless on Alexi Lawless's podcast about um, the, 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 the issues between certain players on that club. So the issues in the dressing room, the poisoned dressing room, uh, if you will. And um, we were not aware of that. And that torpedoed the whole thing in the World Cup. Now, you have to remember the World Cup is a small window it's it's three mm -hmm. matches in a group stage over the course of eight or nine days and the u.s mentally and psychologically because of this drama uh, that i want don't really want to get into on this show if we yep. had more time i would but um they were not mentally in the right place yet there were moments in that world cup where we showed well i i we gave up a, a 
a soft goal to uh, Germany in the first 10 minutes uh, because uh, our, our defender Mike Burns made a mistake playing the post. But then from minutes 45 to 60 in that opening group game, we were the better team to the point where the crowd in, in France and Paris gets behind the USA and are doing all A's uh, as as we're creating chances. Uh, then Jurgen Klinsmann, ironically enough, gets a goal on a counterattack and, and, and we lose 2-0. But there were moments in that World Cup where we played very well. Uh, the Iran game, I think we dominated, but we lost. And then the game against Serbia in the final group game, we played pretty well. Um, so I don't, I, you know, it's funny because they have these retrospective rankings of teams where they base it on points and goal difference. And we finished 32nd in that World Cup. But I felt like it was just kind of an out of place moment in the evolution of the national team. We'll mention then a year later, uh, we beat Germany twice. Mm-hmm. And we beat Germany in a competitive match in the Confederations Cup in 1999 uh, with what was basically a U.S. A-minus team. So I, I felt we were in a good place. I don't think we were going to win the World Cup, but I, I expected to at least compete to get out of that group. It's very different, I, I just have, have to say this, than I feel about the men's national team now or that I've felt about the men's national team the last five years. The last five years, I think the team is worse than the 98 team and by a considerable distance, even though the 98 team bombed out in the World Cup, as I said before, that World Cup, and then after that World Cup, they had really good moments. A run to the semifinals of Copa America, a run to the semifinals of the Confederations Cup. Um, now what we've had since 2016 or so is just you know epically bad performances historically. Right. Uh, it reminds – you mentioned the 1980s. It reminds me of the 1980s, and it probably began – much like you're talking about in the 1980s when we went to Guatemala and lost a qualifier in 2016. That's probably when the whole thing, or maybe it was the Jamaica game in 2015 that we lost in the goal. And and like you said, Kartik, this US team in the 1998 World Cup finished dead last in that tournament uh, based on uh, points and goals, etc. But uh, in terms of the performances, wasn't that bad. But um, yeah, I just don't agree with that contention that the men in Blazers had is that the team had hopes of winning it at all. Um, now, 2006 World Cup, um, and th- this is something I wish I had tape of, but if you remember, Kartik, uh, from the very first uh, opening for the game, which was the, the pregame for USA against uh, Czech Republic yes. on, on ESPN, and you had Alexi Lalas, you had Tommy Smith, uh, and a couple of others uh, on there. And in that pregame, I, I'm pretty sure, if I remember it correctly, Alexi Lalas said, yeah, yeah, the U.S. team can go ahead and win this World Cup. We're, I, I think we can go all the way. And then the game kicks off. <laughs> and, and within the first by half time, uh, Czech Republic were winning 2-0. It felt like it was like 6-0. Uh, yeah. The U.S. got completely outperformed. And at halftime, I think they had to roll it back in in terms of just the, the, that going pre-match thinking, okay, we're going to win the World Cup. Halftime. Going like, oh my gosh, Jan Kolo just completely decimated this U.S. squad. Rosicky was just running the show. Oh yeah, Rosicky, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, The other thing I remember from that pregame show was not only yeah, the U.S. can win it all from Lawless, but then Lawless saying Casey Keller was possibly the best goalkeeper in the world. And That's I right. love Casey Keller. Yeah. But you're in a group with Gigi Buffon and Petr Cech. So at best, he's the third best keeper in your group, let alone the world. So that was uh, – and he had had a great season at Mucin Gladbach uh, in the 05-06 season. But that was uh, – uh, 
really an odd comment. And, and quite frankly, at that point, Keller was not the best American goalkeeper. Friedel was. Mm-hmm. Friedel was starring for Blackburn, but Friedel had, of course, um, retired from international football uh, because of this situation where he and Keller were not. There was never a clear number one, right, when uh, they were both around. So Friedel focused on his club career in England. Uh, but that that pregame show, it, it, I think there was a lot of just ESPN um, – infused hype i don't think i don't want to blame lawless directly i think what it was was that there was this desire to try and force people to watch that world cup casual american sports fans that's what the dave o'brien factor also you've talked about extensively Mm -hmm. and others have and that was part of it to say the u.s could win the world cup when in fact uh uh, there was very little chance because the U.S. was kind of on the back end of uh, of a good team, and you had your best players, who at that point uh, were were perennially injury prone, which who were Claudio Reyna and John O'Brien, and, and Brian McBr- and then your other two really outstanding players were Brian McBride and Eddie Pope, both of who were on the very back ends of their career. So mm-hmm. um, it, it was, uh, I mean, I know the, all the talk coming into the World Cup was about Landon Donovan and Demarcus Beasley, but neither had a good World Cup, and neither were really, in my mind, coming into that competition, the guys the U.S. were going to count on. I think the U.S. needed a healthy John O'Brien. He wasn't fit. That's the last football he ever played, in a competitive yeah. um football he ever played was in that world cup and then uh claudia reyna who just clearly wasn't healthy fit the whole time and then had to come off in the in the final group game when the u.s still had a chance to advance um after pulling a hamstring or something when he gave the ball away which led to ghana's first goal so um yeah actually you're right chris now that you mentioned it 2006 is when they they hyped the team and said they could win the world cup that was that was the year and it was an epic failure yeah and speaking of epic failure that that entire I mean, really, that 2006 World Cup from ESPN and ABC was an epic failure. And that was one question I asked when we interviewed uh, Chris and um, Amy on the ESPN uh, preview for the MLS season. So maybe about four or five podcasts ago, where uh, talking about the 2006 uh, World Cup and then the 2008 Euros, where the 2008 Euros, they took all the lessons they learned from the 2006, uh, all the mistakes that had, they had made. And the 2008 broadcast of the Euros was really, really a turning point for soccer broadcasting in the United States because it st- started then to focus on, let's, let's be more serious about the coverage. Let's focus on uh, not hyping things up, not having some baseball commentators or basketball commentators doing soccer. Let's go hardcore and, and treat soccer the way it should be treated. And uh, everything that we see today in terms of NBC's broadcasts and coverage from Fox and others uh, owes a lot of debt and gratitude to that 2008 World Cup because um, Euros uh, because of where we are today. And again, a lot of those were lessons from the 2006 uh, World Cup um, in terms of the coverage that they, that they did do. There were some good moments, but for the most part, it was absolutely awful. All right, so we want you to have your say. So if you have uh, any thoughts, um, opinions, questions about streaming or watching soccer on television or going back and watching on demand, uh, you name it, let us know. We would love to hear from you. You can always reach us via email through web at worldsoccertalk.com as well as facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk and on Twitter at worldsoccertalk. Plus, of course, you can always post your comments on worldsoccertalk.com. And the podcast is released every Thursday, 
Uh, this week, actually, we might release it on Friday. Uh, just to kind of uh, give you guys a chance to listen to the uh, the enjoy interview, but you can listen to uh, the World Soccer Talk podcast stream um, across all the podcast players out there. And uh, if you get a chance, give us a review on iTunes and let us know how we're doing. Kartik heading into another weekend of uncertainty. <laughs> uh, what are you planning on watching? Anything? Uh, anything in your plans this weekend? Uh, I'm not sure be uh, honest with you i mean it's just kind of <laughs> every day is different I'm, I'm spending a lot of time working on my uh the research for my book on florida history so yeah. that takes up a lot of my time i don't know what i'm going to do football wise i think probably i'm going to go back and watch some of those uh goals of the season and uh uh, uh and also uh, reviews of the season from the Premier League, which I bought. And then maybe uh, a couple of the Bundesliga magazine shows that I've stored on my uh, DVR, I'm going to go back and – that I've already watched, by the way, that I'm going to go back and watch again just to get my fix. Yeah, and uh, other than the World Cup documentaries I mentioned before, um, we've got Matt Jones, who's one of our writers, uh, who's been writing for us for several years. He's putting together a list of his top 10 fam- uh, favorite soccer documentaries – which Kartik, I know, I know you'll enjoy. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that list too, to see um, of that 10, which ones I haven't seen yet. Uh, and that could be a good opportunity for me to watch some uh, some more uh, soccer this weekend. Uh, so as soon as that's posted, it'll be on the, the homepage of uh, worldsoccertalk.com. Yeah, and I think the documentaries are going to really tidy us over during this this period of time. And also should mention a lot of the club-specific channels are running um, different archival uh, shows and, and, and documentaries. Uh, City TV, I know, is, for example. So there are uh, opportunities, I guess, to watch this stuff. But uh, as you said, uh, and, and I, I would have disagreed with you if we'd had this conversation on the podcast last week, uh, it's difficult to sit and watch old games. And sometimes uh, even the documentaries kind of drag on or kind of club propaganda. So... Um, I found that in my own experience this week with that Chelsea-Manchester City game, a game that I, I genuinely thought I was going to take two hours of my time uh, watching, and I ended up taking like 20 minutes of my time. So one more thing, Kartik, is uh, what you just reminded me of is Saturday on NBCSN, they're showing Behind the Badge, the Crystal Palace uh, documentary. Um, if you haven't seen it, watch it. It's really, really good. Uh, if you have seen it, like you and I, Kartik, we'll probably pass on it, I'm guessing. But um, but th- that's, that's what I want to see more of, really, is... Uh, the, the behind-the-scenes documentaries and, and those types of things. Uh, most of them, I think I've, I've seen all of them, perhaps, um, but maybe they have some additional ones that they could actually broadcast. But uh, that's the type of content I'm, I'm looking for, personally speaking, uh, not speaking for all soccer fans by any means. And Kartik, uh, heading into, again, again this another uncertain week, and hopefully everyone's staying, staying safe and healthy. What should they do? Enjoy your tape football. <laughs> even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.